This is Bob Johansson, and this is a, a background reading to give some context for a session we're going to be doing called Pathways to Optimism at the 10-Year Forecast Retreat, the 10-Year Forecast for 2019 to 2029, uh, where the theme is Navigating the Age of Distributed Superpowers. And at this session, the Pathways to Optimism session, we will include a conversation about faith in the future, about new spectrums, new spectrums of meaning. It's from a book I just finished called Full Spectrum Thinking, How to Escape Boxes in a Post-Categorical Future. And in that book, I talk about the urgency to move beyond where we are now, which is a kind of simple-minded categorization of experiences and categorization of the future to thinking in more of a full-spectrum way. And the good news is we'll have these new tools for full-spectrum thinking, things like uh, big data analytics, the visualization, gameful engagement, neuroscience, going to make it possible to think in a broad-spectrum way in ways we've never been able to do before. So in the book, I explore the application of these kind of broader-spectrum ways of thinking for thinking about product-to-service spectrums, for thinking about human computing resources, uh, thinking about hierarchy and shape-shifting organizations, thinking about diversity. And finally, and this is the chapter I'm going to read from today, finally thinking about new spectrums, new spectrums of meaning. So the definition of full-spectrum thinking is the ability to seek patterns and clarity across gradients of possibility, outside, beyond, across, and maybe even without any boxes or categories, all the while resisting false certainty. Chapter 11, this final chapter of the book called Broader Spectrums of Meaning, A New Game, A New Game of Hope. When my dad died, my mom said, I have faith. I don't know what I believe, but I have faith. They had been married for 60 years, and my mom didn't feel any certainty after my dad's death. Still, still she felt something, and she called that something faith. Faith arises out of limited human understanding, but it nudges nudges people toward expansive, full-spectrum thinking about life possibilities. Faith is related to clarity. Faith kindles hope. But faith is not the same as certainty. Faith is not an answer. Faith includes questions, usually lots of questions. Faith is at least a touch fuzzy. Faith is inherently future-oriented. Faith grows out of a learning mindset. Faith allows you to navigate your way through things you don't have all figured out. Faith helps you find your way through fear. Faith is grounded in a sense of humility and openness to learning in an uncertain future. Faith implies a full-spectrum mindset. Faith lives in the space between insight and action, the same space, the same space where strategy lives. That's why it's called a leap, a leap of faith. Introducing a new strategy is a leap of faith. As with strategy, faith requires directional clarity, but great flexibility in how faith is lived out. Faith shapes 
the kind of future we are able to imagine. I believe we are moving toward new spectrums of meaning-making that will help us increase clarity and decrease certainty. Faith in the future will be even more important than it has been in the past. Faith seeds hope. In the long run, the scrambled future will require clarity, but punish, punish certainty. Certainty will be too brittle and inflexible for the scrambled future we will be facing. Spectrum thinking will help us understand the many forms of meaning and meaning-making. Categorical thinking will leave us mired in false certainty. Faith promises clarity, but it doesn't tell you what to do. Faith is directional, but not explicit. Faith informs individual choice, but the higher ground of faith is trust and confidence. Many people confuse faith with certainty. To inspire faith in someone is to empower them, but faith Faith is humble. Certainty is arrogant. Certainty, unlike faith, is locked in hindsight. As the theologian Paul Tillich said, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. I first read Tillich when I was in divinity school, and his writing helped me understand the value of faith and the dangers of rigid belief. Certainty is rigid categorization. Certainty is freezing the truth. True believers categorize obsessively. They want to know whether others are in or out, whether or not they too are true believers. And with true believers, there are usually only two sides. The ultimate power play is to claim that God is on your side and not, and not on the other side. The people of Christian faith, foresight is shaped, informed, and informed by what has come to be known as the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Scripture, tradition, reason, and experience. Faith. Faith helps us imagine a better future. When the Institute for the Future did a custom forecast for the Consortium of Endowed Episcopal Parishes of the Episcopal Church in 2007, I learned about the the Anglican notion of discerning questions. A discerning question cannot be answered with a yes or no. Discerning questions are part of a fitness program for developing faith and clarity. Discerning questions challenge certainty and cultivate clarity. Foresight often provokes powerful, discerning questions. My favorite definition of religion is meaning-making. Traditional religion is yielding to distributed authority, meaning-making, in ways that I find very exciting and mind-opening. At Harvard Divinity School, for example, a very unusual project is underway to map the spectrums of meaning meaning making outside organized religion at the edges of the sacred and the secular. As the poet-songwriter Leonard Cohen said in his song Anthem, there's a crack in everything. Look for the cracks. That's where the light gets through. Caspar Tokayl, 
Angie Thurston and Sue Phillips are the core team of this exploration at Harvard Divinity School, which has already yielded remarkable insight. Here's the way they say it. Our expression of religious life is dying. We need containers that give spiritual permission and show people how to be together. Containers that allow people to derive meaning. Containers that are safe enough to allow people to try something. Fear, especially categorical fear of others, is a shallow container of meaning. The Harvard Divinity School team is exploring broader spectrums of meaning-making. They want to understand the new models for meaning-making, how they are expressed, and how they could be turned into meaningful habits or rituals of faith on a larger scale. After studying these new spiritual movements for the last few years, they have concluded that we are in a, what they call a quote here, very juicy moment in history where meaning-making is a growth industry. Are we at an inflection point? They think we are, and I would like to believe that we are. In 1995, I led a project probe at Institute for the Future called Good Company, What's the Meaning of Work? I had just finished a book with a novelist, uh, Rob Swigert, called Upsizing the Individual and the Downsized Organization. And that book, that research, convinced us that What we said then, life after downsizing means fewer managers managing more people with more cultural diversity and more geographic separation, but less or even no corporate loyalty. For the survivors as well as for the dispossessed, this left a void of meaning at the core of many organizations. But the mood back in 1995 in the wake of the disappointments of the reengineering movement seemed ripe to me, for strong interest in meaning-making. Our report contained many examples of meaning-making innovations that were underway and looked very promising in 1995, but when we reviewed those efforts in 2019, most of them had ended. The quest, the quest for meaning, is persistent, but the successful efforts to make meaning over time are rare. The core research question for the Harvard Divinity School team is this. How can we retrieve the ancient wisdom without the constraints? In a beautiful, substantive, and accessible report that they call How We Gather, the Harvard team identified a wide range of valid spiritual practices that are not part of any organized religion. Six core meaning-making themes were recurring across a wide spectrum of the activities they studied. First, community, valuing and fostering deep relationships that center on service to others. Communities focused on exercise and health are particularly popular signals right now. Creating new communities is often more powerful than simply joining existing communities. Communities in the future will be increasingly virtual, but the more virtual we become, the more we will value in-person experiences. Next, they talk about personal transformation, making a conscious and dedicated effort to develop one's own body, mind, and spirit. Again, exercise and health are very motivational, and people are willing to pay for these experiences. The emergence of cheap and connected sensors will make personal transformations easier and less expensive. Social transformation 
pursuing justice and beauty in the world through the creation of networks for good, the looming societal challenges of today, particularly the asset gap and global climate disruption, are particularly powerful motivators. Global connectivity will make social transformations across geographies more likely. Purpose finding, clarifying, articulating, and acting on one's personal mission in life. Hope, hope is the key variable here. Creativity, allowing time and space to activate the imagination and engage in play. Gameful engagement will grow in popularity as digital interfaces become increasingly robust. Finally, accountability, holding oneself and others responsible for working toward defined goals. Tracking and sensing systems will make it easier to account for transactions and communications, sometimes even without central authority. The rituals and practices of spiritual life are clearly changing, but the direction of change is not yet apparent. These new experiences are difficult to categorize. While habits are automatic and mindless, rituals are iterative but mindful. Rituals are a condensed code of meaning, and repeating the code reinforces the meaning. My wife and I, for example, say, I love you to each other at least a few times a day. Why do we say it again and again to each other every day, even though we already said it several times yesterday and the day before that? The sociologist of religion, Robert Bella, explains that the very human need for iterations of meaning, we need that in order to keep the connection alive. These ritual habits become even more important, he says, in a world where we have more access to information but less access to meaning. Meaning is dependent on the condensed code. We might begin to understand that, though the word is frequently used, meaning is not nearly as central to our present concerns as information. After all, meaning doesn't tell us something new, It seems just to be saying the same old thing, though in a deeper understanding, and it makes sense of the new. Meaning is iterative, not cumulative. The request was not for more information, but for the reiteration of meaning. Bella goes on in this article to tell the story of one of his graduate students, a pastor in an urban California congregation. The pastor and student was asked to the home of a dying woman who had been in a coma near death for many days. After a conversation with the woman's daughter, the pastor suggested that they go into the room of the dying woman and pray with her. The woman, her daughter, resisted taking the pastor into the room with her mother since the mother had been in a coma for so long, but the pastor insisted. The pastor started with the Lord's Prayer and was barely into our Father who art in heaven when the dying woman in a coma woke up and joined in the prayer. She stayed out of the coma for several days and had significant conversations with her daughter before she died. Bella's takeaway, the request was not for information but for reiteration of meaning. Codes of meaning like the Lord's Prayer or I love you embody meaning in an active way so we can all carry on the story in which we are all playing a part. 
The core story could be the same for a child or an elder, but as we age, more meaning gets rolled in with the iterations. So the story lives and grows in importance. Our challenge in 2020, and Bella's essay was written in 2001, our challenge in 2020 is that many of the ancient codes of meaning no longer carry the same sense of meaning for many, maybe most, people. Certainly an an unbundling and remixing of our stories of meaning is underway. Many of the ancient stories just don't have the same zest and vitality they once had. In a full-spectrum world, meaningful iterative habits will be critical to keeping our meaningful stories alive. How might new digital tools and networks help us keep ancient stories of meaning alive and engaging? Virtual churches are an obvious possibility, and there are signals today. But I'm more interested in ways to do gameful engagement in the meaning-making space. I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do see some hints. The Harvard team is studying attempts to revive ancient meaning-making and sorting the current signals into, one, belonging to relieve isolation and help people connect, and two, becoming a meaning-making void for many people who are asking basic human questions like, who am I? Why am I here? These questions call for full-spectrum thinking about meaning. Even with the massive boom in information available, people are still seeking meaning, maybe more so now than ever. Rituals and habits can be a condensed code for meaning, but only if the stories are alive in the minds of the believers In a world exploding with uncertainty, certainty about something, anything, can seem a relief. Certainty bestows power, but it also invites abuse. The culture of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church, for example, was clearly linked to both faith and power. God is, for many believers, the ultimate power. Those who claim or are perceived to have a special relationship with God, are sometimes granted unusual power. Abuse can be an unfortunate byproduct. When I was in divinity school, I was introduced to the notion of pastoral psychology, a combination of psychology and theology. I was intrigued at first, but became sobered by the delicate balance of power when a psychologist claims an additional right-of-way by implying some sort of divine access. While I could see the potential to benefit through a mix of psychology and religions, the dangers were looming. Psychology is imposing enough, but holy psychology was way too much for me. I drifted away from churches in spite of having earned the academic degree necessary to be ordained. I felt the need to broaden my spectrum of inquiry, and I just found the church too constraining. Human-machine symbiosis could add an additional dimension of meaning. How might hybrids of humans and machines develop new experiences of meaning-making? We each have to find meaning for ourselves, and sometimes it gets harder as we age. Chip Conley, the hospitality innovator, now focused on corporate elders, And I discussed him earlier in this book. He talks about how he hid his gray hair until his 50s, 
Uh, then he grew a kind of Hemingway-like gray whiskers. And when he asked an old friend, does this beard age me? And she said, no, darling, it sages you. Age gives us license to play the wisdom game, and the game is getting more serious as we age. The wisdom of age gives us something we can offer in cross-generational exchanges. The digital natives who grew up digital, but age and experience gives us digital immigrants, all of us older than 25 in 2020, a different and possibly useful sense of what is important. Larry Smarr may know more about the workings of his own body than any other person on earth. He is an extreme version of what has come to be called the quantified self-movement that began in Silicon Valley almost a decade ago and accelerated the popularity of body sensors to monitor our steps and body functions to help us make healthier choices. His goal is for each of us to become what he calls the CEO of our own bodies. Today, Larry Smarr is a highly unusual human being working with very special computing resources to understand and manage his own body. Ten years from now, normal people will have access to similar resources for well-being. Computing will augment human talents, not just automate routine tasks. And human resources, the human resources function, will include a strong focus on health and well-being. Larry Smarr is a signal that hints at how we will have a whole new full-spectrum view of our own bodies and how we can make healthier choices. About 10 years ago, I helped Humana create an innovations board to explore the future of health and well-being. As part of this effort, the Institute for the Future worked with Humana and Gallup to develop a map of the elements of health and well-being, thinking 10 years ahead. So often in the U.S., quote, healthcare, unquote, really means sick care. And we don't devote much time at all to develop all aspects of health and well-being. I believe that meaning-making implies successful engagement with all aspects of life and living. Physical, mindful, interpersonal, societal, financial, in-work, and spiritual. In my book, The New Leadership Literacies, I built upon this well-being model to make a forecast of how the best leaders will develop their own well-being in the future, thinking 10 years ahead. Each of these combinations of leadership and skills fits into a larger spectrum of meaning-making. I believe that increasingly over the next decade, meaning will be connected to physical and mental health and well-being. Four elements of well-being will be particularly important for new spectrums of meaning. A body-hacking mindset will be linked with meaning-making. Using continuous external and internal body sensing to help make better health choices. Physical well-being is basic to meaning-making. If we aren't physically healthy, it's much harder to find meaning when I was in divinity school, biofeedback was the new trendy California thing to aid in meditation and what we would now call mindfulness. The real challenge with biofeedback is knowing what the best pattern is for each of us. Having someone else who monitors our patterns can be very helpful. 
Over the next decade, sensors will be very cheap, very small, and very connected. An increasing proportion of those sensors will be inside our bodies. Healthcare won't just be outside in. It will be inside out. Now, in most groups to whom I speak, half of the participants wear a body sensor of some sort to help them track their fitness and make healthy choices. Ten years from now, everyone who wants one will wear a body sensor, and half of us will have some sort of embedded body sensor. All of us will be cyborgs. Self-knowledge of your own brain will make it easier to understand the process of meaning-making. Over the next decade, neuroscience will become practical. As we understand our brains and our minds better, we will be able to understand better how meaning is derived. Our brains like to put new things in old boxes. Next generation tools, networks, and neuroscience understanding will help us teach our brains the new tricks of full spectrum thinking. As recent research on the neuroscience of storytelling has concluded, our brains are wired for stories. If our brains don't hear stories, they make them up. The emerging tools of full-spectrum thinking need to take this inherent need for stories into account as they qualify sources and blend them together. Stories must be told, but they must also feed into the stories people are used to hearing and the stories that make meaning for them. As a leader, you will need to perform best at the edge of your own competence and not just in your own area of expertise. Traditionally, leaders have been expected to be at their best at the center of their expertise. Ten years from now, the edges will be more important than the center. Each task will require a blend of skills and resources that stretch, stretch beyond the traditional job functions. As we move from categorical to full-spectrum thinking, we will need to bridge categories and think across categories. Leaders will need both strength and humility. Leaders are a source of clarity. Finally, leaders will need to seed and nurture hope, especially among young people. And they'll need to work across generations. Those young people who started to become adults in 2010 or later, what I refer to as the 2010 threshold, are the first true digital natives. And the younger, the younger you are, the stronger the effect. I'm very optimistic about these young people if, if they have hope. If they have hope, they will be inspiring. If they don't have hope, they will be depressed or dangerous. Faith can incite a feeling of power. In a distributed authority world, the power of faith will be increasingly distributed. Individuals will feel it. Organizations can grow because of it. And societies can be influenced by it. In a world where anything that can be distributed will be distributed, many will long for certainty. And there will always be somebody usually a religious or a political leader, who will promise false certainty. Expect power shifts, power struggles, and power plays focused around meaning-making and using the promise of meaning as a motivator. We are all in a dangerous game, a game of hope.